as I said, it's uh, lovely to be here um, and really appreciate your uh, support for us um, as, a, as a family and as a church plant. So um, it's uh, just a great privilege to partner with you in the gospel. Let me pray for us as we come to God's word. Our Father, we are so thankful that you are the God who reigns, uh, the God whose kingdom has come, and the God whose kingdom will one day come in full. And as we think about this parable of the kingdom of heaven, we pray that you would help us to be those who are ready for that great and glorious day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it begins with a pang of envy. Next comes the anxiety, the self-doubt, the gnawing sense of inadequacy. Finally, those feelings fizzle, leaving you full of bad-tempered irritation, whether it's uh, triggered by Laura's tweet from backstage at that gig, or Joe's photos from his tropical retreat. Most users of social media will recognize the syndrome. What is this person talking about? They're talking about FOMO, fear of missing out. The uneasy and sometimes all-consuming feeling that your peers are doing something better than you. Now, FOMO is officially nine years old, nine years since that acronym, FOMO, was added to the dictionary. But of course, it's not really nine years old at all. Our experience of missing out may be heightened by technology. That's new, seeing people's cherry-picked perfect presentations of their lives 24-7 is new, but I guess all that time really ever did was put a new name onto an old reality. Uh, that deep-rooted insecurity that all of us feel, it's not new at all, this desire to belong, to be accepted, to be part of things, the sadness at being left out of making a wrong choice, of missing out. I didn't go to that party and I should have gone. I wasn't invited. I wish I was. They're having such fun and I am not. They have what I want. And it might just be for you that that is a particularly acute feeling. Maybe you can think of specific times in the past and it almost hurts just to think of it all over again, that you did miss out, that you were left out. Or it could be that just being in church um, adds to that feeling. You look around and you see people who have what you would long for. Uh, they have the friends or the families or the qualities or the situations that you crave for, but you don't have. FOMO, I wonder where you feel it. Uh, this morning, we are looking at this parable that Jesus told in Matthew 25. It's the last week of his life. It's Holy Week. And he's teaching his disciples about the future. He's already predicted the destruction of the temple, uh, the signs of his coming, the very end of the age. Uh, no one knows exactly when he will return, but he wants his followers to be absolutely sure that he will return. And knowing this should make us do two things. It should make us first keep watch, he says, and then second, it should make us 
serve. In chapter 25, we have three parables. The first is all about this first command to keep watch, and the second and third about the second command to serve. And so today we look at this first parable. And what we have in it is a warning to not miss out on the kingdom of heaven. That's what we're thinking about this morning, not missing out on the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus says there is one event that you really don't want to miss out on. In fact, there really is one and only one event that really matters, only one that really counts. It is the wedding banquet in the kingdom of heaven. If you're a Christian here this morning, trusting and hoping in Jesus, ready for the kingdom of heaven, you know, it doesn't really matter what you miss out on now. It could be that those feelings are deep, but from an eternal perspective, they don't really matter. Because in the kingdom of heaven, you will get to share in every good thing imaginable. But if you're not ready, the danger is that you'll miss out, and you'll miss out for eternity. And that is what Jesus longs would not happen. That is why he's telling the story uh, to wake us up. So he tells this parable, verse 1, at that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. So the setting here is a Jewish wedding. Now the customs surrounding Jewish weddings are a bit different from what we're used to in this country. Uh, to begin with, the wedding ceremony happened at night. Uh, my sister got married on New Year's Eve quite a number of years ago, and it was the only wedding I'd been to which happened mostly in the dark. It was very dramatic, and so to here, what would happen is that the bridegroom would leave his home with some close friends and travel to the home of the bride. And it was at her home that the wedding ceremony would be conducted. So no expensive wedding venue, no church, no plush hotel, no converted barn, no country castle. And helping out at this wedding are these virgins who we would call bridesmaids. And their job is to escort the bridegroom into the house to meet the bride. And they do this in a torchlight procession. And the ceremony, after this, there was a celebratory banquet. Sometimes back at his home, but in Jesus' retelling, it seems that everything happened at her home. So the customs to this Jewish wedding ceremony are a bit different to ours, but did you spot what was similar to our weddings? There's a lot of waiting. But notice, it is the women who wait for the men, the bridesmaids for the bridegroom. And with this wedding banquet in mind, Jesus tells a story about his return. It's going to be like ten virgins, ten bridesmaids who went out to meet the bridegroom. And they take their lamps to form this procession to escort the bridegroom into the wedding. Now, when you think of the lamps, don't think of uh, little lamps with a candle, like this picture, if you can see it. It's not like that. Think uh, big torches with a big flame. I was trying to find a picture for you, and this was the best I came up with. It's supposed to be blank. Yeah, that was, I'm afraid that was the best I could do. I couldn't find one. Uh, but just picture a big lamp um, would have been fueled um, by rags soaked in oil. 
Now, without the oil, these lamps would burn for less than a minute, but with the oil, they could burn for hours. But you'll have noticed there's a problem. Verse 2, five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. So the foolish virgins have these lamps that will hardly burn at all. And the wise ones have all they need for their lamps to work. That's the situation. And then verse 5, we have a delay. The bridegroom is a long time in coming. And the bridesmaids, well, they become drowsy and they fall asleep. I don't know what is the longest you've had to wait for at a wedding for the bride. I think my sister, going back to that wedding I mentioned earlier, was the longest. She remembers it as half an hour. I think she's probably underestimating how long we all had to wait. But it was a long time. But here, it's longer again. The bridegroom just does not show up at all. And it's late. And everyone is tired. And all the bridesmaids are sleepy, ready to drop. And despite that kind of fight to keep their eyes open, well, they all fall sound asleep. And we can imagine, it's quiet, it's dark, and it's still. Nothing's happening. No one is stirring. Uh, you can hear the crickets outside buzzing. But then all of a sudden, there's this cry, a call, a shout, the bridegroom's here, come out to meet him. It's the middle of the night, and suddenly he's arrived. Utter panic. It's like that moment in Home Alone 1. Do you remember it? The taxi van arrives, and they're all asleep. They've overslept. Everyone is screaming, running around hysterically. The virgins get their belongings. They gather themselves. They pick up the lamps. They trim them, prepare them, light them, get them ready. He's here. The moment has come. It's now. And yet it's, it's this moment that the foolish virgins finally see their folly. Because despite uh, being there, despite looking ready, they're not ready at all. The lamps they have are not going to work. They haven't got the oil. So they say to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No. They respond, we don't have enough. Go buy some yourself. And so, verse 10, the foolish virgins go to find a shop to buy some oil. The very moment they need to be there, they go. The very moment they need to be present, they're absent. And it's no surprise to us in the drama of the story that it's at this moment the bridegroom arrives and they're not there, they're away. Uh, we can imagine the joy, the relief, the excitement, the happiness for those who were ready. At last, <laughs> he's come. He's here. The long wait is over. The wedding banquet can begin at the fun that lies ahead, the dancing, the drinking, um, the, the jokes, the joy, the wine, the unwinding, the happiest time of all. And so the five wise virgins escort the bridegroom lamps burning into the house and the door is shut. Well, some point later, verse 11, the five bridesmaids, the foolish bridesmaids show up. They've now got their lamps. They're ready. They've got their oil, plenty to spare and spares as well. And perhaps they knock. 
And they call out, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. We're here, we're ready. We want to come in. And they wait, maybe they hear footsteps and then a voice, loud, clear, chilling. Truly, I tell you, I don't know you. It's a moment of shock, a a terrible realization, horror. The door is not going to open. And so with that, the five foolish virgins, they stand outside in the cool of the night air, flames flickering in the quiet, still darkness, speechless, breathing heavily outside the house, outside the party, and the door remains firmly closed. And the story ends. And Jesus says to those who are listening, therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. It's a very dramatic story. And the question is, what is Jesus teaching us in this parable? I want to draw your attention to three things. Here's the first. Some who look ready will not be ready. As hearers to the story, we are introduced uh, with, to, to the story with special knowledge because we know that of the ten bridesmaids, half of them are foolish. And we know why. Um, but I suppose to a casual onlooker, there's really no difference between them at all. All the bridesmaids look like they're waiting. All would say they're waiting. All have their lamps. All look ready. And yet we know that only half are ready. Half are not ready at all. So what does Jesus mean by this? Well, he's talking about a vitally important theme. There are going to be people who look ready, but are not ready. Uh, People in church who give every impression of a sincere and genuine faith. They say they are Christians, members of churches, they're baptized, they read their Bibles, they serve, they're involved, and yet there is something vital missing. They're not waiting. They're not ready. And when the time comes, they will be exposed as not ready. And that is a fairly significant theme in Matthew's gospel. It's what you might call fake faith or counterfeit belief. So, for example, chapter 3, you've got the Jews who claim to be faithful but do not produce fruit. Um, Chapter 7, you've got false prophets who dress in sheep's clothing but are inwardly ferocious wolves. Chapter 13, you've got the seed which springs up in the parable of the sower but is scorched by the sun and choked by thorns. Chapter 15, you've got the Pharisees who honor God with their lips, but Jesus says their hearts are far from him. Chapter 23, the religious leaders, Jesus says, are like whitewashed tombs, on the outside clean, but on the inside deathly. And the point is that Jesus is making again and again is is that many will look genuine, but in the end will be found wanting. Some who look ready will not be ready. And as we think about that, uh, this is a call to us to test our own hearts. 
and ask ourselves, am I genuine? Am I for real? Am I ready to meet the Lord? Maybe we're the kind of people here this morning who are here but might not have been here. Uh, We're here because nothing better came up. It's not a busy season. Uh, The sun's out. There's no sport on. We had no better offers. Or just because. Uh, But honestly, we're not really ready to meet the Lord at all. Or maybe we're the kind of people who are always here and never miss a Sunday. We're devoted, we're committed, we're reliable. But it's all a bit of a show. Others may not know it, but deep down, we don't really love the Lord. We're not ready. Or maybe we have found ourselves just slowly starting to cool towards the Lord. Honestly, we've tried Jesus, and we've tried him for years. But, frankly, we are disappointed. We find ourselves disillusioned by the wear and tear of life. And God doesn't seem to have helped much. It's not worked out as we'd have hoped. And we're not looking forward or waiting anymore, just going through the motions. Well, if any of those descriptions touch on anything in our experience, we need to hear this warning. Some who look ready will not be ready. And here's why it matters so much. Here's the second thing. Uh, Those who are not ready will miss out. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of missing a train. Uh, Where the closer you are to catching it, the more frustrating it is to miss it. You're standing on the platform. You're right next to the train. Maybe you're moving towards it, but then all of a sudden, the door shuts and the train starts to move. And the frustrating thing is, there's just nothing you can do about it. So frustrating, so final. Uh, The worst I had was um, missing a ferry. A number of years ago, um, Susan and I were driving up from central France to catch the ferry home from Dunkirk. It was one hot Saturday in August. We left plenty of time. It wasn't my fault at all. Um, didn't even occur to me it would be difficult. And then would you believe it, on that Saturday, the whole of France decided to travel on that day. We ended up moving at the pace of a small French snail. They're particularly slow. Um, and as we went on, it just became increasingly clear that this was going to be tight. It was going to be really, really tight, very stressful. First time I experienced my whole neck just tensing up. There were four hours to go, and then three hours to go, and then two hours to go, and then one hour to go, and we were getting closer and closer and closer, 30 minutes to go, but we just didn't know if we were going to make it. I thought we might just make it, but as we arrived into the ferry terminal, we saw the ferry (laughs) there in front of our eyes, heading off into the horizon. So frustrating, so final. And of course, that is the punch of Jesus' parable. The five foolish virgins return, but it's too late, and that's it. There's no way back. There's no way in. The door has been shut. And they plead, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. And when we hear those words, Lord, Lord, we're supposed to think back to chapter 7, where Jesus speaks about the false teachers. And he says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter 
the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And what will Jesus say to them? Verse 23, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. And so what we see here in this parable is that what was true of the false teachers will also be true of counterfeit Christians. And I don't think there can be any worse words to hear than these ones. I don't know what the most painful words you've ever heard spoken to you are. I take it you can still remember them, loud and clear. It's difficult to forget, but surely these are the worst words that anyone could ever hear spoken to them. Jesus saying to someone, I don't know you. I don't know you. Who are you to me? You are a stranger to me. And the door will close. And the door will remain closed. And that will be it. And there's no way in. There's no second chance. There's no purgatory. There's no middle ground. There's no waiting room. It is earth-shatteringly final. It's unalterable. It's irrevocable. And the contrast that Jesus sets up here is so acute. Did you you see that? Because for those who are ready, it, it will be the warmest welcome imaginable. It's lovely to be invited to a wedding, to be wanted. Assuming you're pleased with the match, it's wonderful to be there. And when you arrive, it's all smiles. You arrive and there's such a buzz. You're soaking up the atmosphere. You're looking forward to the day. You see, for the Christian, to enter into glory, to see the Lord, to hear the welcome, to arrive at the party. Well, I don't have the words to express how inexpressibly glorious that will be. And to feel the warmest embrace, to weep the deepest tears, to experience the richest joy, the weightiest relief, the greatest peace, the warmest welcome. The long wait will be over. No more tears or pain or disappointment or being left out or weakness or sorrow or sadness. We will be home. But for those who are not ready, the door will be shut, locked and bolted. You see, this is why what you do with Jesus is the all-important question of your life. Because those who are not ready will miss out. They'll miss out on the kingdom of heaven and they'll miss out for eternity. And so 
The call for us this morning is to do what Jesus tells us to do. Verse 13, to keep watch, uh, to wake up from our spiritual slumber. See, maybe you're here this morning and frankly, you're, you're just not that serious about God. Uh, you've got one foot in the door and one foot out. You're straddled between Jesus and the world. You're doing the spiritual splits and you're not quite sure where you'll end up and you're not really that bothered. But let me uh, plead with you to pay attention to your soul, to the things of God, to your eternal destiny, to hear the warning of Jesus and the invitation of Jesus. Because Jesus uh, looks at you this morning in the eye and he says, come, don't miss out. You're invited, you're welcome, and I want you with me. If you're not a Christian, that's the invitation to you, to come and to find rest for your soul. Jesus has bled on the cross to pay for our sins, that we might be his, that we might be with him in glory. And what you have done with Jesus in the past is not important what matters is today what you do with him. It's the most important question because those who are not ready will miss out. One more thing as I draw to a close. I suppose we have a, a fairly significant unanswered question. Um, what does it actually mean to be ready? How do we keep watch? Well, the next two parables, Jesus answers that question, but here in this parable, there is one thing we can say, and it's this, number three. Being ready means knowing the Lord. It's very interesting in this parable what the bridegroom says to the foolish virgins. We might have expected him to say, it's too late. That's why you can't come in. It's already started. There's no need for you anymore. But he doesn't say that, does he? He says, I don't know you. And we might wonder, doesn't he know them? Are they not his friends or the friends of his beloved? But of course that word to know is not meant in an intellectual sense. Of course he knows who they are. No, to know is a relational word. To know is to be in relationship with. It's why in the Old Testament, this idea of this word to know is sometimes used of sexual intercourse. Adam knew his wife. It's a subtle description, speaking of something deeply intimate. So why does Jesus say, I don't know you? Because at, at heart, the kingdom of heaven is all about relationship. The kingdom of heaven is the sphere in which Jesus is acknowledged as king. And the kingdom of heaven is for those who know Jesus. To be in the kingdom is to know Jesus and to be known by Jesus. It's for those who respond to the love of Jesus. To be a Christian is to come to know the love of God in his Son and by his Spirit. To know God as my God. It's personal. It's not about performance. Jesus is not going to say, have you done enough? It's not about morality. Jesus is not going to say, are you good enough? It's not even about belief. 
He's not going to say, do you believe enough? It's about relationship. Jesus is going to say, do I know you? Do you know me? If you think about how it works with weddings, with us, who gets invited? Well, friends and family. The kingdom of heaven is beautifully described as a wedding feast. And it's friends and family that get invited. Being ready means knowing the Lord. Let me ask you, do you know the Lord? And today, are you going to respond to him, uh, to lean on him, uh, to rest on him, to wait for him? Let me pray for us. Our Father, we are so thankful for the teaching of Jesus, which speaks so powerfully into our lives and into the future. We're so thankful for this invitation to have the hope of glory, to be invited to the wedding feast of Jesus, the wedding feast in the kingdom of heaven. And Father, we, we long to be those who live in light of that, who look forward to that, whose lives are shaped and changed and transformed by that. So we pray by your spirit you would lift our hearts to you, that we might be those who believe and who have great joy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.